Please give a round of applause for our musicians. You even had me trying to do a little jig there. Thank you. And if everyone could take their seats, we're going to get started. And please, a round of applause. And everyone has noticed that we had a star lasserer. I think that's it. And David. And David is, do you mind if I tell them? 17. So thank you, David. We really appreciate it. And welcome, welcome, welcome to the third annual Pratt Presents. Uh, this is, as you can tell, a wonderful transformation that's taken place in this central hall in this library. For those of you who were here last year, you may remember being transported to Charleston, South Carolina. But I think tonight we have really outdone ourselves. The photographs that you see are from a local Baltimore photographer who was so entranced with his visit out west that he took these wonderful photos and we transposed wonderful sayings from Mr. McMurtry's books on them. So we wanted to have the grandeur of the West here and to honor Pulitzer Prize winning author and Academy Award winning screenplay writer, Mr. Larry McMurtry. Or, you know, because of his work as a novelist, essayist, screenwriter, and really just an inspiration to so many writers, he is well-deserving of the Lifetime Literary Achievement Award that we will receive tonight. He also, we thought, as a tribute to you, um, was the person that inspired this transformation in travel to the West. And it was the result of a great deal of creativity, professionalism, but also, you should know, incredible generosity. And there's, there are a couple of people I'd just like to mention who helped put this together and who gave their services. Ms. Erin Cermak of Chicka Chicka Boom. I love saying that. <laughs> um, Event EQ and the Pantry Caterers. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And of course, our other sponsors who are listed in your program, and for all of you who are showing your support for the Pratt Library. Some of you who were here last year also know that I take this opportunity to just share a few tidbits about the Pratt Library and what's happened in the last few months. And as you can imagine, I am asked frequently as a librarian, what about the future of libraries? Well, let me assure you, the future of libraries is strong, and we believe that the Pratt Library, like other public libraries in this country, will remain the great equalizers, providing free information to all. And last year, in these challenging times, more than 1.8 million visitors physically walked through the doors of the library and 12 million visitors came via our website, prattlibrary.org. And we are one of Baltimore's top attractions and destinations. However, we are catching up with the times, and we are adapting. That means that we're still an information provider and a purveyor of books and the promoter of literacy, but we are also right on the cutting edge of the digital age. We have over 800 computers, and I have to pause here and thank Bank of America for giving us that transformational gift that made it possible. We won a gift, uh, the national award, to allow all of our 21 branches to be completely Wi-Fi. We now have a Wi-Fi cafe you might not see it with the saloon, but we've got a Wi-Fi cafe. We have computers that are available to job seekers who are standing at our doors every day to get on those computers to apply for jobs. We have young people who are doing their homework. And now, and you'll be able to see it at the end of the program, we are really, really in the transformational age. 47% of our customers come in just to use the computers. We also have a library app. That means that right now, on your portable device, you can pull up prattlibrary.org, you can check the status of your account, 
You can do all types of things, and I'm going to stop here because that's about where I can go with it. <laughs> you can download books, free books for your e-readers. You also can Twitter and tweet, and in the back, you will see Beyond Books. It's a special exhibit that our own Graphic Jack designed, or Graphic Jack Young, who's our graphic designer, that shows you the not only the app, but how you can search the internet for your family history from your cell phone or your iPhone. You could also check out e-readers at libraries now, and that was from another grant. And we are putting the high school and middle school reading lists on e-readers, and their kids are going to be able to check them out and look cool reading their reading lists. So Beyond Books is a wonderful part. So we just want to let you know that we're going high-tech, but we're still remaining high-touch. There are so many people that tell us their Pratt Library stories. Many of you are in the audience tonight, a librarian who helped you, the fact that you were able to do what you do now because the Pratt Library helped you. And we just thank you for being so generous to the Pratt. When I thought about, well, how can I you know, express this to you and let you know what it means to be, as Mr. Pratt said, in 1882, the People's University. I thought I'd just end with telling you what he said then and to thank you for making his words take us into the future. He said, my library shall be for all, rich or poor, without distinction of race or color. I hand it over to you, expecting you to foster, protect, and increase it, that its benevolence and its influences may be for the benefit of the present and all future generations, as long as our beloved city of Baltimore shall exist. Thank you for keeping his dream alive. Now, we're very uh, fortunate to have a very active and engaged board of directors and trustees, and many of them are in the audience tonight, and to move the program along and introduce our wonderful co-chair of tonight's event, Ms. Nancy Hackerman, is the chairman of the Pratt Library Board of Trustees and Directors, Mr. Vernon Reed. Welcome again to another great Pratt Presents at the beautiful Central Library. Uh, in terms of beauty, I don't know how many of you get the chance to drive down Cathedral at night. I mean, just looking at the windows is uh, tremendous. And then once you come into this edifice and look up, look out, uh, you're pretty impressed with the structure we have here. We have 22 other structures, and the staff does a great job. I'm Vernon Reed, uh, President of the Pratt Board of Directors and Trustees. I'm happy to see so many familiar faces and friends, uh, and delighted to see a lot of new people. Thanks for coming. Tonight we're thrilled to be joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Larry McNurtry, and we're honored to have you be a beneficiary of the prestigious Pratt Liter Lifetime Literary Achievement Award. That's a mouthful. This is also an evening we'd like to express our appreciation and gratitude to all of you. Fellow board members, can you stand up if uh, the board members are here? Please, you do so much. Donors, staff, uh, also uh, we like to express appreciation to Carla and her, her leadership team and her staff. They do such a wonderful job, probably one of the best teams in Baltimore in terms of not-for-profit public institutions in terms of their staff. Thank you. And of course I'd like to thank all of you, my, our, our friends. Your much appreciated support for the Pratt's work has made a bit, big impact on many lives. Carla talked about that earlier. Every time you walk into any Pratt Library branch in the city, you see impact of their hard work and your generosity. From Spanish story time, Buena Casa, Buena Brasa at Southeast Anchor Library, to free computer classes at the Orland Street branch, to, to GED classes at Walbrook branch, these are just to name a few. Your giving supports our mission of lifetime learning in Baltimore. Here at the Pratt, we cherish all of your gifts, from $20 from a senior to big corporate donations. You'd help us a lot, and we really appreciate it. 
Give yourself a hand for helping us so much. Thank you. On behalf of the Pratt Board of Directors and Trustees, I'd like to thank each of you. But I'd also like to thank all of our amazing sponsors of Pratt Presents, led by our major funders. One would be 750 East Pratt. The other is Miss Shirley's Cafe. I love their blueberry pancakes. I have them for lunch. Uh, the other is Mr. Robert Meyerhoff and Rita Becker. I think they may be in the back. I, don't, I haven't seen them. Thank you all. And Mr. Meyerhoff, I would be remiss if I did not announce to this group that your dear friend and mine, Freeman Rabowski, will be on 60 Minutes this weekend. And also, Freeman just received a $500,000 prize from the Carnegie Foundation. Your dear friend. <laughs> There's one person I'd like to single out above all the rest. It's a Pratt board member and event chair, Nancy Hackerman. Nancy and her committee members have worked many hours to make this night memorable. May I ask Pratt Presents committee members to please stand? As Carla mentioned, that this is the third one we've had. Uh, Murray Wheeler, and I see Bob Hillman over there. We've uh, continued to keep it going with really good and talented people running Pratt's Presents, and it's one of the best events we have all year, and I thank all of you. Nancy, can you come, please come to the stage? I know you don't want to do this, but can you please come up? Nancy, through your efforts, the Pratt has raised a pretty nice sum of money that will be used to benefit Pratt's children in teen literacy programs, your hard work did not stop there. Nancy, you, are used, you use your film background to personally create the Western soundtrack. They said, don't shoot me. Yeah. <laughs> we heard in the main hall. This is an example, example of how big a fan you are of Mr. McNerty's work. After tonight, I'm sure we all will be. There are not enough superlatives to describe you and your efforts, but on behalf of the board and staff of the library, Please accept our deep, deepest appreciation for making Pratt Presents Larry McNurtry such a success. Thank you. Thank you and enjoy. Thank you. Today is, uh, I'm not prepared to say anything but. <laughs> Today is a very special day. Uh, aside from um, meeting a, a sort of hero of mine down there, Mr. McMurtry, it's also the 70th anniversary celebration of my parents' anniversary. <laughs> so they uh, actually met at the Forest Park branch of the library. So it all sort of comes around and goes around. Thanks for being here. And you should know, at the Forest Park Branch Library, there are two chairs sitting next to each other with the wedding photo of the Hackermans there. And they have both been there and have been so generous to the uh, Forest Park Library. And as Mr. Hackerman said, she was inside the library. I was on the steps waiting when she came out. <laughs> so thank you, Nancy. We appreciate it. And now I just wanted to let you know a little bit more about how the evening is going to unfold tonight. After a short intermission, we'll, have, we'll go out into different parts of the library and we'll return to this wonderful spot for a great hoedown. And during the intermission, and you can imagine all the fun we've had with all these Western references, hoedown and jig and all this stuff. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, during the intermission, you'll have four fun destinations that we cooked up for you tonight. First, there's Booked Up over to my right, and that's the bookstore named for uh, Mr. McMurtry's rare bookstore in Archer City, Texas, complete with the pig logo. Uh, you can purchase copies of his books for your personal library and also for holiday gifts. And you should know that 40% of all of the proceeds will go to Pratt's Children and Teen Literacy Program. So. You're, you're helping us out when you do that. 
Then you can mosey over to the High Noon Saloon, and that's to my left for a drink and get your book signed by Mr. McMurtry, and then you can continue down the hallway trail. Now, I don't know how long I would keep this Western going, but I'm doing pretty good. Continue down the the hallway trail to Rare Books Finds, and that's located in our special collections department. And tonight, in honor of Mr. McMurtry's own love for rare books, you'll find some of the Pratt Library's rarest finds on display, like a 15th century book, which is the oldest in our collection, a first edition of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and I know there's some music lovers here, a journal from a soldier in the War of 1812, we're really preparing for that, and one of my personal favorites, a first edition of The Great Gatsby, inscribed by F. Scott Fitzgerald to H.L. Mencken, along with a letter that Fitzgerald wrote to Mr. Mencken, thanking him, as he said, for your very kind review of my poor book. And then, at the back, Beyond Books Ranch. And that is where you will get a really wonderful experience looking at Pride and Passion, the African-American baseball experience. It's a traveling exhibit that's only going to be in 10 libraries in this country, and the Pratt is hosting it until December 9th. And you'll also see that special kiosk that's all lit up there with all of our latest technology, our lendable e-readers. You'll see how our social media is working. And you will also be able to then come back to this hall and have more fun and libations and more opportunities to have lunches at the library with. We have had so many people who have been so generous, starting with Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, School Superintendent Dr. Andre Salonzo, Dr. Freeman Rabowski of UMBC, and I think that the MacArthur Genius Grant is next for Freeman. I think we should all... Oh, yeah, he's going to get it a Hubble astronomer, and many, many more. So you can also try your look at the giving wheel. The prices range from 40 to $800, including a round trip uh, to south, the Southwest, a night in a hotel, and gift certificates to all kinds of restaurants and stores. And you can't lose because every item on that giving wheel will buy another early learning computer for children three years old and younger. We have those types of computers, so that's what we're doing. So please uh, join us for that. And also, you should know, and this tells you how high-tech we are, we are being tweeted right now. And Roswell Encina, who is our fearless uh, director of communications, is tweeting, and he's been tweeting all night, and you'll be able, and he'll show you how to you tweet your own things to people. You should know that we are the sixth most followed library in the world on Twitter. That's behind, only behind New York Public Library of Congress, the University of Edinburgh because of the poetry collection they have there, uh, and just a couple other libraries, but that's because of that. So right now we have thousands of people who are following us on Twitter. So this is a lot of fun. Now with Nancy as the chairperson, and um, she also said, uh, if we said too much more about her, she was going to shoot us with that gun. (laughs) We also were very, very honored to have um, a person who said when we called her to ask her to introduce tonight's speaker, she was delighted. She said, he is one of my inspirations uh, for writing, and you know her as a person who has supported uh, libraries and literacy throughout the nation. She is best-selling author Laura Lippman. Now, I first met her, and I have to say a word about you. And look, she's very high-tech. She's got her stuff on there. We said everybody's high-tech. When I first met Laura, she was a reporter at The Sun, and she did the first profile of my first year at the Pratt Library. And at that time, I was so impressed by her fairness and her objectivity. She also shared at that time that she was writing a book. And I said, Laura, you've got the perfect name to go over a title. Laura Lippman. I can just see it on the cover. And then now I brag about the fact that Laura Lippman actually wrote an article, and I'm in it. 
So thank you, Laura. She has won every award that you can think of, the Edgar, the Tony, uh, <laughs> it's the Anthony, uh, the Agatha, the Seamus, the Nero Wolf, the Gumshoe, the Berry Award. She's the first ever recipient of the Mayor's Prize for Literary Excellence. And last year, she was recognized as Author of the Year by the Maryland Library Association for all she does for libraries all over. So thank you, Laura, and thank you very much. Um, I know people know me as a local girl, and I am very much a Baltimore girl, but I had a Texas interlude. I had a Texas interlude primarily because I could not persuade the Baltimore Sun to hire me. And it took eight years, and I spent those eight years actually pretty happily in Texas, right after I got out of um, college. And in the fall of 1981, my car was in the shop after being part of a chain reaction pileup on a Texas highway. I boarded a Greyhound bus in Waco, Texas, to go see my boyfriend in San Antonio, Texas. I was very poor at the time. My salary at the Waco Tribune Herald had started at $175 a week. Three months later, it was now $185 a week, which for those of you who want to figure this out, that's less than $450 in 2011 dollars. So I bought most of my books because it never would occur to me to stop buying books, devoted library user that I am, at half-price books and had a very unusual and varied collection as a result. The book that accompanied me on this particular journey was Larry McMurtry's All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers, which begins. I think I fell in love with Sally while she was eating breakfast the first morning we were together Either I did it then, or I did it a little earlier the same morning, watching her stretch. And at that moment, I looked up from the book. This is just absolutely a true story. I told it to Carla the day that she called me about this. And I said, one day, one day, I would give anything to write something like this that would make someone else in the world as happy as I am right now to be reading this novel, which did become one of my favorite novels of all time that I reread all the time. The particular copy that I read, having been picked up at a half-price bookstore, happened to be a reprint of a 1972 title that had been put out by University Press. And when I got to the end of the book, I found that there was an essay that explained to me that the book I had just finished and loved was a regionalist novel, Farewell to Regional Literature that Mr. McMurtry had as a writer been using literature as, these were the words of the professor who wrote the essay, a relentless exorcism of sorts. I was confounded by any suggestion that this was a novelist on his way to greater things. I thought the book was pretty great. But the professor stated confidently that the main character would never reappear. And okay, to be fair, Mr. McMurtry had said that very same thing. And then he went on to declare that Larry McMurtry was through with the American West. That essay was published in 1981. Four years later, Mr. McMurtry published Lonesome Dove, which would win the Pulitzer Prize in 1986. It turned out he wasn't through with the American West, and he was not even through with the main character of All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers. Danny Deck would show up again in 1989, Some Can Whistle. And I'm telling you this story not to make fun of professors, although I like to make fun of professors. But because as a novelist, a genre writer, to be quite clear, someone who is really unworthy of this assignment but very glad to have it, I do know the frustration of having others declare so decisively what one is doing or intending. I think it must be especially frustrating for a writer such as Mr. McMurtry who, in addition to producing 40-plus works of fiction and nonfiction, is such an astute critic and voracious reader. So I don't want to stand here tonight and tell you that Mr. McMurtry is this, or he intends that, or his role in American letters is such and such. There are quantifiable facts about his work, although you'll notice that I shied away from putting an exact number on how much he'd written, because I've been away from Baltimore and therefore away from the Pratt for the last three weeks and I don't really trust internet-assisted research. <laughs> I think he just told me he's working on 42 and 43 on right now, but I knew it was, it was more than 40. You know, I can add that 
in addition to the Pulitzer, he also has an Academy Award for writing for the screenplay for Brokeback Mountain and many, many other awards, all of them quite well-deserved. But ultimately, it falls to him to define himself and his work, to tell us what he wishes to tell us. And so I'm going to get out of the way and let you go straight to the source. Thank you very much for being here tonight. Have to be careful. I've already fallen down one set of stairs this week. It's just why, why I have this impressive shiner. I was uh, in Dallas, landing in Dallas an hour late, and I had set up a conference call in Hollywood, which I really, really, really needed to make. And I barely had a chance at it, and I raced through the parking garage to get to the hotel in Dallas, and I missed a step. And that's why my eye is a spectacular color that it is. I like that young rofer. I, I, I wish I could have had him uh, two months ago at my wedding. I got married in the 21st of June in Archer City, and I advertised locally. I advertised locally for six cowboys to come and chaperone my wedding. I brought in a lot of weird people, and <laughs> We had to think of the possibility of riot and things like that, and that's what cowboys are supposed to be good at. But what, what interests me is that I guess the rope trick is coming back. This young man was very good. Six weeks ago, I had the honor of um, introducing the first ever John Wayne Film Festival, which occurred in Snyder, Texas, a very rough little High Plains cotton town and I said, sure, who could resist introducing John Wayne Film Festival? So I journeyed out to Snyder. It's about 100, 100 miles west of Governor Perry's home in Paint Creek. And this, this, the first film, which was The Searchers, of course, was shown outdoors. And it was summer, but we still had to wait to about 9.30 or 10 for it to be dark enough to show it on the screen. And then finally it was dark enough, and I staggered up through the, through the field where the showing was taking place, only to arrive at the microphone to see a young cowboy with a horse. And he handed me the reins. And I was clearly supposed to open the John, first ever John Wayne Film Festival from horseback. <laughs> But I hadn't been on a horse since I was 23. I regard them as unstable, stupid, immature, dangerous animals. <laughs> and I had been kind of curious that some cowboy was riding that horse back and forth, back and forth, back and forth through all the preliminaries, I guess hoping to wear him down to the point where he didn't, uh, he didn't slaughter me. Anyway, enough of anecdotage. Here I am, honored to be achieving an award from the Pratt, a library I've always admired. And uh, despite the consummate rusticity of the setting here and all the doodads and ropes and just like that, I consider myself really an urban intellectual. <laughs> I've done actually everything I can do to escape rusticity. <laughs> and then I made the mistake of writing Lonesome Dove and all hope was lost. It's always going to be the Hat Creek outfit. It's always going to be a horse. It's always going to be something redolent of the West. Although I will say that out of my 41 books, only about 10 are actually Westerns. The other are domestic novels or books of essays or, or this, that, and the other. But I understand the appeal, and it's fine. People should read what they want and like what they like. What they like. Um, I have, here I am in one of the citadels of the book, at a time when the book is really under threat. And I've had a very fortunate career, very fortunately been able to have three careers. My career as a novelist or writer, my career as a screenwriter, very different discipline, very different craft, really don't relate to one another at all, and a bookman. Because I have in Archer City, Texas, uh, not all that far from here, 
um, 400,000 books, antiquarian books, all chosen by me over a period of 55 years and open to the public like a great library should be. And um, I'm wondering what I'm going to do with those 400,000 books because five years ago they were an enormous asset, one of the last great stocks of antiquarian books in America. There are only one or two other stores that are come even close to what we have, and it's gone in England, and it's gone most, it hasn't quite gone on the continent, but it's gone to such an extent that we are getting customers regularly from China, from England, from Australia, from Germany, from Portugal, we are one of the last stops for people who want to just go and have the serendipitous pleasure of walking in a bookshop and walking down a row of books and pulling one out and looking at it and maybe and maybe buying it. And um, I think that's important. On the other hand, I'm, an, I'm to some extent a realist, and there's no doubt but whether the digital age is here, it's come, I'm not so sure that I want to cry the death knell for the traditional book. I just reviewed a book about the famous CEO of Amazon Con, Jeff Bezos, who's constantly going around saying, well, you know, books have had a good run, they've been here for 500 years, let's get rid of them and go with the Kindle. Well, I don't know, but what Mr. Bezos is certainly an operational genius. He had a sim he's like kind of like the Henry Ford of book selling. He had a simple idea and he executed it doggedly. And Amazon is just what it is, and it undoubtedly is the largest supplier of books in the world, and probably will continue to be. And all power to him. But I don't think that necessarily means that the traditional book needs to step off stage. So they've been uh, traditional books for 500 years. Why not 600 years? Maybe the Kindle is a bubble. Maybe it isn't. But I, I think it's least worthwhile to suggest that the Kindle might be a bubble and people might come up again to real books. Uh, I don't know. But I'm, I've just become conscious of this recently because I suddenly realized that my asset, 400,000 well-selected antiquarian books, it's now a liability. If I die tomorrow, my heirs would have a dreadful burden on their hand rather than a tremendous asset. So, you know, life has changed and we do the best we can with it. I um, feel on these occasions that I can cover more ground if I invite you to ask questions. I don't have that much to say abstractly. You know, I have these three careers. I can talk about writing, I can talk about screenwriting, I can talk about book selling. But I'd rather do that thanking the Pratt for this great honor that's been bestowed on me. I'd rather do that just by letting you ask questions. Yes? Yes, I know. Well, I just wrote an introduction for a, a neglected Argentinian novel called, um, oh gosh, Metabaleos. Um, I think highly of university presses. This is for the University of Chicago Press. I just got um, a bulletin from Hopkins about memory. I'm an aged man. I'm in my 76th year. I have some memory problems. And I read the little, the little booklet that Hopkins produced on memory. It was very, very helpful to me. I think I know where I will have control of my memory better than I have the last couple of years because, of the, because they break down the different kinds of dementia, semi-dementia, you know, uh, dementia relating to vascular issues, things like that. University presses are terrific. I would always plug for them. And this is one of the best in the world. More questions? Okay. Uh, I would like to ask you as a novelist, what is called intelligence or patience? Drudgery. Uh, <laughs> so that would be patience then? Drudgery. I, from the beginning of my career, found out that um, 
I work best when I write five pages a day. Just now, that's just a normal typewritten page. I'm finding that I'm unfortunately working with antique machines called typewriters. I've never used a computer. I've only used typewriters, and I'm having a hard time finding them. But, you know, poets can be in and out. They can work on a line and give it up and go play tennis, go seduce somebody, come back a couple of days, <laughs> a couple of days later, and um, eventually they'll get a poem. But novelists are the workhorses of literature, you know. Slow and steady is what does it. And all my career, I've written five pages a day. And if you do it every day, year after year, it adds up to a hell of a lot of pages. And all my archive is in the library, is in the, is in the Robert Room at Rice, which is my really intellectual home. But, um, yeah, I think um, just doing it every day, some days you'll be better than you are other days, uh, but I've always proceeded at a five-page-a-day pace, and I still do. And, and I've written 41 books. No, I always quit. And I think if you read the, method, the working methods of most novelists, novelists, not historians, not poets, not short story writers, novelists, they work a fixed amount. Hemingway counted, wor I mean, Hemingway counted words. Graham Greene wrote 500 words a day. Da 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 dum. Thomas Mann wrote one perfected page a day, not counting his occasional writing, but just working on the novels. You have to keep going, and sure, you'll have good days when you could write 20 pages. But two or three days later, you're going to find that the well is empty. Whereas if you just write a fixed number like five, um, it'll fill up. Get up in the next morning, there'll be something coming out of, coming out of the typewriter. So I, um, have been, I've been a drudge for a long time. 55 years I've been writing fiction. 50 years I've been writing screenplays, and 55 years I've been running a bookshop. I should tell you a little romantic story. I grew up on a small ranch in West Texas. I was born in the heart of the Depression, 1936, in a ranch house where I don't remember any books at all. There may have been a Bible, but I never saw it. I don't remember it. When I was six years old, I was a sickly youth. I was... I got to play hooky for the whole second semester of my, freshman, of my first grade year. And I was listening to the radio all day. I was kind of a Proust of the radio. And um, one day I was listening to the radio, and a cousin of mine named Robert Hilburn, Hilburn stopped by the ranch house on his way to enlist in World War II, and he left me a box of 19 books. They were just ordinary, common boys' books of the time, Jerry Todd and Papillard and people like that. But those 19 books were my library for a long, long time. And I seem to have learned to read spontaneously because Robert came, Bob came in and gave me the books and said, gave me a hug. And I started, and when he went out the door, I picked a book out and started reading it. And I've been reading ever since. And I consider reading itself, you know, writing is work, but reading is pleasure. And it's one of the most stable and one of the most cheapest pleasures of life. And I still organize my day around reading. Yeah? The character of Gus in um, Lonesome Dove seems to be one of, more, to me, one of your more, more interesting characters. He has so many observations. He's a, a, a cowboy who's a philosopher, and I wonder how much of yourself you put into Gus in Lonesome Dog. You know, uh, I don't think of my books once I finish them. I write them and then I put them aside. Sometimes I have to, if, if I have to be involved in a film production, which I'd rather not, except unless I needed money, then I rather would. <laughs> I never think of them again. And um, I think, I don't, Lonesome Dog came about in an odd way. When Peter Bogdanovich made the last picture show and became a famous director and had some power to get movies made, he wanted to do an end of the West Western. And um, he wanted to do it with James Stewart and Henry Fonda and John Wayne. And John Wayne would have been the character that eventually became Woodrow Call. John Wayne turned it down. 
Time Stewart accepted it. Um, Henry Fonda accepted it because they needed work and they weren't getting it. But John Wayne worked until the day he died. He didn't need work. He didn't like the part. He thought that Captain Carl was an asshole and that he, that he would be disliked. Exactly the opposite of true. He would have been loved. But he didn't see that, and he died. He said it was too gloomy, and then he made a movie called The Shootist in which he dies of colon cancer. So go figure. <laughs> but, but when John Wayne said no, we lost all chance of making uh, that script into a movie. And 10 years passed, and we tried it around studio and studio and studio. It just wasn't going to go. And I decided to write it as a novel, and I did. But then I let it go. I haven't given it a thought. I did. It had nothing to do with the miniseries, which came along about 10 years later. I've never seen it. Don't want to see it. Wouldn't mind seeing it, but I just never get that much time to watch TV. So I've never seen Lonesome Dove, and I know uh, Gus is a very popular character in my own hometown. There are probably 50 images of Gus, <laughs> of Robert Duvall as Gus. He's very popular. But I didn't have anything to do with it, and I don't know anything about it. I don't remember his philosophizing. I'm, when I think of Lonesome Dove at all, I think of it as an attempt on my part to understand my father, and I failed. Now, next question. Oh, sorry. I've got the lady over here, and I'll get back to you next. Well, um, my screenwriting partner happened to be in my home in Archer City when that story, there was a little story called Brokeback Mountain, 11 pages, published in The New Yorker. And she came running downstairs one morning. Somebody had given her the magazine and told her to read the story. And she raced down and, and gave it to me and said, you've got to read this. I don't normally read short fiction because I can't write it Why I read it. Um, <laughs> but I did read this story, and I was thunderstruck. Why hadn't I written that story? It's been there, hanging there in the West for 50 years or more. And she wrote it, and she's a great masterpiece. And we sat right down, and we wrote her a letter, and we asked her if we could buy an option to film it. And by golly, she let us. She sold us a cheap option. Got in just ahead of several European directors who just got, their, their New Yorker came a little later than my New Yorker. <laughs> And we got it, and it took nine years to get it made. But by golly, we got it made, and we got it made well. Nine years is about the norm. Terms of Endearment took ten years to get made. Last Picture Show, about eight. It just takes eight or nine, ten years to get a film made of, of any seriousness. Over here. You um, mentioned that, that it's very different being a novelist and a screenwriter, and I wondered if you could elaborate on that. I sure can. What, I sure can. Going back and forth. I can elaborate on it. Let's say, let's start this way. Fiction is a very, which I worked in all my life, and Laura brilliantly could sustain this, is a very cheap art. If I get a notion to write a book about Billy the Kid, say, write a novel about Billy, who's going to stop me? I can write it in three months. I can get enough grocery money and food money and a typewriter ribbon or two, and nothing stop, is going to stop me from writing that story. Say it's a movie. Everything stops you. You've got to raise a million dollars probably to get even a decent, a halfway decent script made. And then there's no guarantee that anything will happen to it. Screenwriting is practical. It, it's a complex craft. You can have as many as 120. We had one sequel to Lonesome Love, Streets of the Red. It had a crew of 120. You can't put 120 people out in the field making any kind of art or attempting without there being major problems. It's very costly. You're looking at raising 10, 15. Now, I wrote the first script of an effort to film the Lone Ranger story. It's called The Lone, it's called the Lone Ranger, The Legend of the Lone Ranger. It's about 20 years ago that I wrote that script for not much money, and the picture was budgeted at the time at a million and a half. Well, decades have passed, and Walt Disney, who now owns The Legend of the Lone Ranger, 
shut it down a couple of weeks ago because the budget had risen to 350 million. 350 million is a lot of money for any movie to return. So it's probably never going to get made. And I don't even know that it deserves to get made. Certainly my draft wasn't very good. And you'd be surprised how many people work on scripts. I got a call, we were working with Terry Gilliam, the brilliant American director who lives in England, and part of the Monty Python team. We were working with him on something that didn't happen, actually it was about Billy the Kid. And he decided to make Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the famous Hunter Thompson, brilliant Hunter Thompson book. As luck would have it, I had written the first script for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in New York a long time ago. And when it came time to assign credits, which the Screenwriters Union does, I was the only one of 23 writers that didn't petition for credit on Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I didn't want credit. I didn't want to be associated with it at all. And and I was right. It's a terrible movie. (laughs) But uh, writing fiction is a private enterprise. You do it by yourself. You don't talk to anybody about it. You just do it. And it accumulates. Philip Roth has called himself an accumulator. He accumulates pages until they turn into a book. Most of us who write fiction do that. We accumulate pages, and maybe someday the pages will coalesce and become a book, but maybe they won't. But it's the difference between a private, imaginative effort, fiction, uh, non-fiction, fiction, fiction, and a massive, collaborative uh, money-driven effort which can take decades and which you never get the money or you lose them, you have it and then you lose it and it doesn't happen. Uh, I think we've been about normal because uh, the three or four scripts that we've got made have taken about nine years apiece. And you have to have tenacity. Tenacity is probably the most important trait in a screenwriter. You have to be tenacious, you just have to hang in. We have four or five scripts right now that... uh, Maybe one or two of them will finally get made. Maybe not. Um, uh, Way back. Question. Uh, Yes. Uh, You have such a wonderful understanding of of connections between human humans um, and their their emotional connections. For example, from um, uh, Lonesome Dove, the two gentlemen to the mother daughter relationship uh, in. terms of endearment how do you how do you put together those those all those great connections I have so five, page, five pages a day <laughs> so that'll do it for me then five pages That's five it. pages a day and sometimes the connections form and they're successful and sometimes they don't it's a big it's a gamble you don't ever I mean that's just part of trying to make a living, A, an art, B, or something approaching art that someone would like well enough to have me up here on the stage in Baltimore talking about it decades after I did it. Uh, but tenacity and persistence is a very important quality in a novelist. Uh, and I have it. I'm pretty persistent. I have a question. Um, okay. Me. What are you working on now? What? What are you working on now? I'm working on a weird little novel. Um, I don't know if it'll work. I don't know if it's going to work. I've been fascinated for several books: Telegraph Days, Anything for Billy, Calamity, uh, Buffalo Girls, blah blah blah, uh, the, and a nonfiction book called The Colonel and Little, and Little Missy about Buffalo Bill and Annie Oakley. I've been interested for some time in that moment or period in the late 19th century when the Old West, the real Old West, with gunfighters and Custer and Indians and all that, uh, became show business. And it eventually did. Uh, Annie Oakley, greatest, one of the greatest entertainers of her time, was given a screen test by Thomas A. Edison in 1884. Buffalo Bill was in three films, or three fragments of films. Wyatt Earp was in a film. Charles Goodnight, the great cattleman who dominated the American 
Panhandle was in a film, only eight seconds, but he was in a film. It had, by the end of the century, it had, what had been the real violent Old West, you know, the Comanches finally gave up, the Cheyenne were finally beaten, it became show business. And that interests me, and I, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm working on now. Um, in right here. Well, I opened, uh, you know, started off with the story about the 19 books. I was never in a library until I got in Rice. And Rice had, at that time, 54, about 700,000 open stack books. And to me, it was like paradise. And I stayed in the, I even slept in the library a few times. It was, they had more comfortable couches than I had beds. Um... And the Rice Library was my intellectual home. How, and I put a library in my little hometown about 15 years ago, a little small public library, and it's been pretty good. On the other hand, as a bookman, I have some antagonism to librarians. <laughs> I don't want to see books I can't buy, basically. And I've begun to wonder in the last few years if, Librarians still really want books, and I'm not so sure. I think that's one that's in the mix at the moment, in the digital mix right now, as to whether libraries are really going to support the book, or whether they're going to really turn into DVDs, audio books, blah blah blah. I don't know. This is a great library. We'll see, but it's not—it's not a battle that's over, and I see. Uh, and I, I, have, I own a lot of books. And I often make gifts of them. I would like to. I'd like to get 25,000 volumes and give them to a library. They won't take them. The processing is overwhelms it. And that disturbs me. I'd like to be able to think you could put books in a library. But I don't know if you can. Um, in uh, about 18 months ago, uh, we went to Archer City and visited and booked up I'm right here. Or right there, okay. Right over here. Take to your right. I can't, okay, over there. Yes. Okay, we visited Archer City and uh, visited, booked up almost six or seven of the locations that are in the, t in the town. Um, and I was amazed to find in your 400,000 books three entire full bookshelves of naval and marine books yeah. and I looked around and there was a landscape like this where in the world did you find three shelves of marine books oh there are lots of books floating in we uh, bought 26 book stocks since the book that the American antiquarian book industry book business began to die and I think it is dying and I happen to be in a position to buy these stores, 26 of them. I can't do it much longer uh, simply because I'm piling up a problem for my heirs. They're going to have four or 500,000 books and nobody's going to want them. And, and yet I, I watch the drama of the changing of libraries and the changing of booksellers uh, I, I did a gig at Brooklyn recently, and not one single bookseller was there. Whereas five years ago, if I'd done the same gig, there would have been 50 booksellers there. So something is ending, and something is not. And uh, I'm just going to have to watch it for a few years and see how, how the flow flows. I don't know. But I know that um, I am getting customers from all over the world you know, there used to be a great book town in England called Hay on Y, gone, down to two stores, just 22 stores at one point, down to two. And those people who were used to going to Hay on Y for their kicks in books now come to Archer City. It's good for the local motels and stuff, and it's good for my bookshop. But the odd, the odd thing that the Internet has done for book selling at my level is internationally. I never had Chinese buyers before. Now I have regular buyers from China. They come in, they don't even look at the prices. Maybe they don't even know what the prices are. They just pile the books up and we invoice them and send them out. 
We have a member of the House of Lords who comes three times a year to Archer City because Taeyeon Wai, right down the road from his house, is not there anymore. If they want to see a lot of really well-selected books, Archer City is one of the places you can go and almost the last place you can go. The other two large stores, uh, Powell's in Portland, Oregon, uh, the Tattered Cover in Denver, and the Strand in New York are the only other competitive stores that have something like the kind of stock that we have. And we don't find any slackening um, of readership, but we do find that the traditional book, and this is just brutal facts of the changes that history brings us, we don't have any young, we don't have any young customers. All our customers are middle-aged or old, all. And uh, they just don't think of books in the way that I thought about them growing up book-starved in a little prairie town uh, 70 years ago. I have two questions. Yeah, one more. Have you, have you ever been working on a book and said, nah, this isn't going to work and thrown it away? And Not yet. Two, and two, when you start a book, do you start with sentence one, page one, and work through to the end? Well, but you usually, my stories usually start with, sooner or later I do, I start with page one and write to the end, but my stories mostly start with a sense of something ending. A group of people together, maybe like two boys, making up for a fight over a girl the night the last picture show is shown in their little town. Some sense of an ending. And then I go back and I try to follow the emotional path of the characters and I almost always come out to the ending I had in mind although I don't write it down but I have some sense uh, like the terms of endearment mother dies uh, I have some sense of what the ending is going to be thank you very much Good evening. I'm Bob Hillman, a Pratt trustee and chair of the Enoch Pratt Society. As Carla told you earlier, Enoch Pratt started this library almost 130 years ago. In 1997, the Enoch Pratt Society was established to aid in the fulfillment of Mr. Pratt's vision. Many of you here tonight are Pratt Society members, and you have our sincere gratitude for those of you who are not, thank you for coming, and we invite you to take a look at the Pratt's website and consider becoming Pratt Society members. Now, I'd like to ask Carla and Vernon, where are you? Vernon, come up here. We want to thank, again, Laura Lippman for introducing our speaker, and again, thank Mr. McMurtry for a very fascinating talk. During these past 14 years, we've presented a special award to an extraordinary group of people, an award for literary achievement by gifted American writers who have enriched our lives by provoking us to think to feel, to act, and most of all, to dream. Previous writers the Pratt has honored include Pat Conroy, Alice Walker, Tom Wolfe, Saul Bellow, Norman Mailer, Barbara Kinsolver, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Ken Gurns, on and on. Tonight we are very proud to add Mr. McMurtry to this list of extraordinary Americans by making him a permanent part of our Enoch Pratt Free Library family. So on behalf of the Pratt Society, we present the 2011 Literary, Lifetime Literary Achievement Award to one of America's favorite storytellers, Larry McMurtry.
As, as some of you have um, heard before, the symbol of this award is a, a casting of Mr. Pratt's, top of Mr. Pratt's cane. So if you get a little rocky or going up yeah, that on and off, <laughs> just attach some wood to the end of that. Okay. Now we ask everyone to enjoy um, the special exhibits um, and uh, cocktails and more that Carla mentioned uh, before as we transform this space into the great American West. Thank you for being here. Saloon, books, and more. Thank you very much. <laughs>